With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. This mini-season of Truth and Justice has told the tale of how two corrupt detectives and a soulless prosecutor sent an innocent man to prison for 30 years for a crime that they knew he didn't commit. The only thing that ever put Pablo Velez on the Houston Police Department and the Harris County DA's office's radar was his car. That was it. The plates on the getaway car were registered to him but Pablo was easily able to prove that he had sold the car to Ron Strandberg weeks before the murder. And that should have been it. It should have been the end of Pablo's ordeal. But disgraced detectives Robert King and Roy Swainson had another problem. They did have a strong case against two other people. Two men whose dots quickly and easily connected them back to the murder. But those two men, Ronald Strandberg and Richard Shorty Cisneros, were dangerous and violent men. The kind of men that should be locked away in order to protect the public. But their threats and reputations scared people away from testifying. So, rather than putting in the work to get these dangerous men off the streets, Swainton and King just looked the other way. They never even questioned either of them. Even though their own records showed that, quote, everyone was saying that it was Wooly, Strandberg and Cisneros who were responsible for the shooting and the death of Emerson Boyorquez. But they were left on the streets to terrorize the citizens of Harris County as King and Swainson suppressed evidence, falsified reports, and even lied under oath at trial, just so that they could say that they closed the case. Pablo wasn't a person to them, not at all. He was nothing but a clearance rate. Today I'm going to share with you why Shorty and Ron should have never left the HPD's radar. This is Season 11, Episode 6, An Ambush. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The core of the case against Wooly, Shorty, and Ron is Wooly himself. 
Before you can build a case against anyone, you first have to see if there's a solid foundation upon which to build. In this case, Wooly is the foundation. He is the one element of the case that is indisputable. Multiple eyewitnesses saw him fire the first shot, and he even admitted to doing so. So let's start there by all agreeing that Jason Woolley was one of the shooters. So now the question becomes, who were his accomplices? It seems he had two, a second shooter and a getaway driver who may or may not have been shooting. As I mentioned last week, the 9mm casing thrown into the mix leaves things a little bit up in the air. And on that note, after further research, I'm not so sure that the 9mm casing and the 40 caliber casings all came from Willie's gun. So let's talk about that first. I told you in episode 1 that Jason Willie had confessed, but that he only confessed to shooting his gun at the ground. And in 2016, he still insists that he didn't shoot anyone. Take us back to that day, to the shooting. Take us back to what happened. Well, I was at the club, and I was leaving out, and then that's when three guys approached me. One of them was taking his shirt off aggressively, and he asked uh, his baby mom, I can't remember her name, but uh, she said, he said, is this the one right here? And uh, she was like, yeah. So then that's when I pulled my firearm, firearm out, and I fired one time to the ground. And then, uh, they was like, oh, no, 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 it ain't like that, it ain't like that. So that's when another car pulled up, two guys jumped out, and then they just started shooting. They started chasing everybody shooting. I ran towards the front of the rack and hid behind a the truck. They ran out towards the, towards the shooting. One of them ran out towards the end of the parking lot, and one ran towards the tattoo shop. And then that's when one guy was running after them shooting. He shot both of them people. Where was Emerson? He was the one that got killed. I know. Where was he? He was with them, the three dudes, when they initially approached me. Okay, so em- you knew Emerson, right? No, I never knew him. Okay, but the guy that got, sh- that got killed was coming from the car or from inside of the No, they perfect- was coming from the car. I was leaving out. It was you like were coming out of the perfect rack. Okay. Me. All right. So you were not with the group of people that rolled up in the car? No, I wasn't. Did you even know them? No, I didn't know them. They were strangers to you? I was there by myself and I left by myself. There was even two witnesses, but they were never subpoenaed. They, I, I didn't know that until now because now I'm, I'm enlightened on a lot more stuff that really happened. But uh, they even said that I left in my own car. Because they, they trial, they tried to say I got in the car with the shooters and left. What but kind of car were you driving? I was you? driving a white Cadillac. A white Cadillac? A 92 like sedan Mobile, all white. What kind of car did these guys roll up in that you mentioned? Like a gold colored Cadillac. So they had a Cadillac and you had a Cadillac. Yeah. One was, was white, white, that was gold. It was, it was a newer model. It was like probably a 96, 97, somewhere around there. Okay, so you see the Cadillacs pull up. You're standing in, in front of the front front of the rack. In front of the rack. Mm-hmm. And who is a, who's around you? It's just uh, Emerson, uh, Adrian, Bayon, and uh, the other one. He was never even brought to testify in trial. Who was the other one? Can you remember who the other one is? Adrian, Bayon, Emerson, and the other one was Esteban. 
this okay. one. Yeah, they approached me. And that's when I pulled my firearm and I fired into the ground. You felt threatened as if something was going to happen? Yes, ma'am. Alright. Now, let's talk about who was driving one of the Cadillacs. The gold. Do you, do you remember who was driving the gold? No, Cadillac? I didn't know who it was. Okay. Do you remember who all were there? Like as far as like faces? Did you know them by name and sight? Oh, no. Well, one of them had a cap. He had a real pool, real low. And the other one, he had like a, a hoodie on. With the hood on over his head. He never really came close. He stayed out in the middle of the parking lot. Could you tell what they were shooting with? Was it pistols, rifles? What one, one of them had a rifle. One had a rifle. Had a pistol. Okay. Was there anything about these two guys, like size, height, or weight-wise, that stood out to you? You, you can remember any heights and weights on them? Well, I, the, like I said, the one that had the rifle, he never really came like close. He stayed out there. And the other one with the pistol, he was kind of a big, big, heavyset guy. Heavyset? Yeah. Kind How of tall would you say he was? Maybe a little taller than me. How tall are you? I'm like 5'10". Okay. Was he Hispanic, white, or black? He looked like he was uh, white. He looked white to you? Okay. What about the second guy? I don't know. He stayed out there. He, Like I said, he had a full long sleeve hoodie on. Any idea of a height or weight on him? Even though it was from a distance? Maybe he was probably maybe about 5'9", something like that. Do you have a clear mind, uh, picture in your mind of their faces still after all these years? Or you think you can remember the faces of, the, say, the first guy that you described to me? Probably not, because I mean, it's happened so fast. They just jumped out and they started shooting. When you hear gunfire, you're going to run. That's if, you, if you're not the one shooting. Okay. What was the motive for it? It was because of that prior incident that happened? Well, from my understanding, Adrian had a fight the Monday night prior to that. Mm -hmm. And uh, he got beat up in the restroom or something like that. And then he went back to his neighborhood and he told all his friends he got jumped. So they had been coming up there uh, looking for the people that jumped on him. And uh, I guess that night, that's when they found me. And they thought I had something to do with it. And that's when she told the baby mama, told uh, Adrian, oh, yeah, that's the one right there. So they, were, I feel like they were finna jump me because yeah, one of them was taking his shirt off. I mean. So you, you were simply, it sounds to me like you weren't connected to the gold Cadillac in any way. These aren't friends no, of yours, acquaintances. First time you ever even seen these guys? I said in episode one that you could hear me rolling my eyes at Wooly's story. And honestly, that sentiment hasn't changed for me. What I don't believe is the notion that it was just a coincidence that in the same moment that Jason pulled out a gun and fired a shot into the ground during a confrontation with Adrian, that a completely different group of fellas just happened to pull out guns and ambush him at the same time. To put it bluntly, I just think that's total bullshit. So, there definitely are elements of Wooly's story that are provably false. He didn't just hide in front of the perfect rack during the shooting, and he didn't drive his own car away. Claudia was just steps behind him, following him as he chased after Adrian. She saw him, along with several other witnesses, get into the gold Cadillac with at least one other person connected to the shooting, and they sped away. So that happened. I'm 100% certain that that happened. 
but I'm not so sure that he was the only one firing a pistol that night. Working against Jason is Claudia. She remembers chasing behind Wooly as he continued to shoot at Adrian. But here's the thing. She was behind Jason, and there were at least 14 shots fired as she was running. And with buildings behind her and to her right, the sound from those shots would be echoing all around the parking lot. It was just absolute chaos. So is there a possibility that even though she thought it was Wooly shooting, that there was actually a third shooter? I think the answer to that question is yes. According to the police report, Jason Woolley was tied to one gun. In a search of Jason's home, police recovered a 9mm pistol. And only a 9mm pistol. To refresh your memory, there was only one 9mm casing found at the scene. Right in front of the front door, where Woolley admits to shooting around into the ground as Adrian approached him. The other 10 pistol casings were all 40 caliber, which, as I explained last week, cannot fit into a 9mm gun. So let's just say, for the moment, that Wooly really did only fire one shot into the ground, since we have no evidence of him owning or even having access to a 40 caliber. So then the question becomes, if it wasn't Wooly, who was shooting the 40? I want you to keep in mind that the information that I'm about to share with you comes directly from Swainson and King's offense report, meaning that they knew this information before they arrested Pablo Velez. And when they arrested Pablo, he told them that he had sold the car to Ron Strandberg. So just keep that in mind, just in case you think that I'm being too hard on these two jackasses. Just over a month before the shooting at the Perfect Rack, there was another shooting at the Sendera Briar Grove apartment complex. Witnesses say that a man was walking through the parking lot on the night of June 9th and came across a couple. The man started yelling at the couple, seemingly unprovoked. Then he pulled out a pistol and shot it into the air, and the couple ran into their apartment. Police recovered the shell casing from the parking lot after the shooting, and it was a 40 caliber. The original investigators didn't do a whole lot of investigating into the Briargrove shooting. But King and Swainson had received a tip that the shooter in that incident may have also been involved in the perfect rack shooting. They investigated and determined, quote, Ron Strandberg is likely the man who shot the 40 caliber pistol at the Sendera Briargrove apartments, end quote. What's utterly amazing is that Detective King actually had the audacity to testify under oath that no one had ever mentioned Ron's name during the course of the investigation into the Perfect Rack shooting. When, in fact, if you actually read his report, you'd see that Ron and Shorty were his prime suspects since Jump Street. As he said in his handwritten notes, quote, everyone is saying that it was Ron, Shorty, and Wooly. And here we find out that he had determined that it was likely Ron who fired a 40 caliber pistol into the air in an apartment complex just a month before the murder. And we have several reports of him often firing his pistol into the air outside of the perfect rack to try to break up fights. But it gets a lot worse than that. Kim Downs of the Houston Crime Lab testified at Pablo's trial that the 40 caliber shell casings found at the perfect rack shooting, all 10 of them, matched the 40 caliber casing that was found at the Sedera Briargrove shooting. It was the same gun. 
The forensic testing that was done on the casing is similar to what you would see with fingerprints. When the gun fires, a firing pin strikes a primer on the bullet and it leaves a mark. Those marks are unique, and under a microscope, ballistic experts like Downs can determine if the same gun fired different bullets. And in this case, it was determined that the same gun was used in both shootings. And the investigation concluded that it was, quote, likely Ron Strandberg who fired the gun at the apartments, end quote. So now let's go back and look at the diagram from last week given this new information. Notice how the 40 caliber casings were found in two clusters. Seven of them were all found directly north of the nail and skincare store, and the other three were found just to the east of that. Whoever fired the first seven shots wasn't running. They don't track along a path. It looks like the shooter was stationary. Then that person ran several feet to the area where the gold Cadillac was parked and then fired three more times. And then all of a sudden, it doesn't really make sense that Wooly was chasing and shooting at Adrian. If that's what had happened, then there would be a line of casings from the front door to the Cadillac. So I'm starting to think that Jason's role in the ambush was to get Adrian to run away from the front door and into the parking lot where his accomplices were waiting to kill him. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As things stand now, we know for a fact that Jason Woolley was at the scene and that he fired a 9mm round into the ground by the front door and chased Adrian across the parking lot. We also know that after the shooting, he got into the gold Cadillac with at least one other shooter. And we also know that Ron Strandberg was the likely aggressor in a shooting a month prior at an apartment complex, and the 40 caliber bullet casing from that incident was definitely fired from the same gun as the 40 caliber casings found at the perfect rack. But what about the third person involved? The blue shirt shooter who both Adrian and Claudia have positively ID'd as Richard Shorty Cisneros. The path to Shorty is a little less clear when it comes to forensics. We know for a fact that the blue shirt shooter was shooting a long gun chambered in a 223 caliber round. Witnesses all agree that he was shooting what looked like an assault rifle, and police recovered four 223 casings from the scene, which is the type of round you'd shoot out of an assault rifle. But Shorty was never connected with a rifle that shoots 223 rounds. At least not directly. And that was definitely for lack of trying. Swainson and King never even went to his house. But the two did receive a tip from an anonymous source 
who refused to testify. The report reads as follows, quote, Shorty is one of the guys who beat up Adrian Payan in the restroom on Monday night. On the night of the shooting, Shorty was armed with a Mini-14 assault rifle, which is a .223 caliber weapon. End quote. Are you still tracking with me? So King and Swainson had a tip that not only was Shorty a shooter during Emerson's murder, but the tipster even told them exactly what kind of gun he was using. And presumably, the tipster wasn't privy to the fact that the rounds found at the scene confirm that the gun used was firing .223 rounds. And yet still, they ignored Shorty and pursued Pablo. And worse yet is what they didn't do. They never once even interviewed Richard Cisneros or Ron Strandberg. Never even asked them a single fucking question. Based on the guns alone, there's enough evidence to connect Shorty and Ron to the scene. In building the case against them, let's look back at what we already know. Remember when Emerson's father's girlfriend spoke with King and Swainson on the phone, and she took this note, quote, Superman said, Ron was one of the shooters, but will not testify, threatened to be killed. He wants to do the right thing, but is scared for his family, end quote. And also from her notes, quote, Everyone says they saw Ron and Shorty, but no one wants to testify to them. Police know they're in the same clique. End quote. And then we have the police report from the shooting at Buffalo Fred's a couple weeks after the murder. Quote, The source said Ron Strandberg, Shorty Richard Cisneros, and Jason Woolley were involved in an exchange of gunfire at Buffalo Fred's Ice House on Friday night. The source thinks the fight at Buffalo Fred's was an extension of the shooting at the Perfect Rack. The source knows Emerson's father. Later in the day, Emerson's father called Officer King. He said a friend of his was beaten and pistol-whipped outside Buffalo Fred's by Jason and Shorty on Friday night. They knocked his friend's teeth out. He said Jason and Shorty are threatening witnesses to the perfect wreck shooting not to talk. End quote. That report was written by the detectives. They knew that Jason, Shorty, and Ron were connected. They knew that they were threatening witnesses. And from what I told you a minute ago, they knew that they were involved in the perfect rack shooting. The forensics all but proved it. The case against the three gets even stronger when Claudia goes to testify at trial and sees Shorty in the crowd. Remember, she had come face to face, close enough to touch him on the night of the shooting. And she knew immediately when she saw him that it was him and not Pablo who was in the parking lot shooting. And she had the gumption to tell the district attorney Eileen Bogar before Pablo's trial, proven by Bogar's opening statement, that Pablo was not the shooter and that the man she saw in the audience at Woolley's trial was the shooter. But even that wasn't enough. And to this day, the Harris County District Attorney's Office is still fighting to keep Pablo in prison. Even though during the course of their habeas investigation, when their investigators went out to see if Pablo was innocent, Adrian told them who the shooters were. When, uh, when I got out the car with Escobar, we walked to the front and Jason was standing at the front door with a red shirt on. Okay. And then we were walking up to him. He just uh, said, you try to run up. And then he pulled his little gun out, cocked it, and he started shooting. Me and Escobar turned around and run. He said, what are you trying to do, run up? That's what he said. Meaning he, that y'all trying to run up on him? Was, he, he just said, y'all trying to run up? And then he just pulled a gun out and started shooting. All right, then what happens? 
while I ran across the street to that bus barn. Okay. Okay. Then what? That was really it. I seen uh, uh they took off and they chased them down to get their plates and all that. When you say they took off, who took off? Uh, Shorty, Jason, and Ron. They all left in one vehicle? Yeah, they all left in the same leg. And did you see them leave? Yeah, I seen them leave. I was on the bus behind the tire trying to hide. Who was driving the vehicle? To be honest, I want to say Shorty, because he was the only one by the car at first. Jason was the last one in the car. I know that, but as far as who was driving that around Shorty, I'm not sure, but Shorty had the, the big assault rifle standing outside. He was the closest to the car. So the surviving victim has positively ID'd Jason, Shorty, and Ron as the shooters. The closest eyewitness, and in fact the only witness with the guts enough to testify, has positively ID'd Jason, Shorty, and Ron. And yet still, Pablo sits in prison 17 years after the murder. Now let me briefly walk you through some more of Detective King's notes. Some of this never made it into his final report, which was shared with the defense. Most of what I'm about to share with you are notes from interviews with witnesses who refused to testify at trial out of fear for their lives. But these are just notes, so they're not written in complete sentences. These are bullet points of the interviews. But they give you a clear idea of who King and Swainson were investigating who they actually thought the suspects were before they arrested Pablo. So here we go. On the 29th of October, King is interviewing a witness who worked at the tattoo shop next to the perfect rack. His notes say, and again, remember, these are just bullet points. Quote, Adrian shot with rifle. Jason has white Cadillac. He has mole on face and longish hair. Shorty has a black jag 2003 to 2004. Showed him Pablo Velez array does not ID Pablo. Jason did prison time with Ron and Sugarland. He's selling drugs. Shorty is one of the biggest drug dealers in Houston. Jason, Ron, and Shorty are tight. Shorty, 28 to 30. His sister comes to club. 5'4", goes to YMCA every day. Head shaved, tattoos cover both arms. 713. Waitress sells drugs for Jason. Inside the loop people. Ron's common-law wife's brother is a Houston cop. Shorty beat up Adrian Payan Monday night. Ron hangs out at Buffalo Fred's. End quote. This interview took place two weeks before Pablo was arrested. And who do you think King actually believed was responsible for the shooting? Did it seem like he was leaning towards Pablo? Here are just a few notes from the next few days as the investigation continues. King is on the hunt for Ron and Shorty and is showing photos to witnesses trying to figure out what Shorty's real name is. Quote, Houston Sheriff's Office, I get photos. A. John Irwin. B. Jason Elizondo. Recognizes Irwin. Elizondo is not Shorty. Ron drives light tan Cadillac Fleetwood. Shorty drives a white Cadillac Fleetwood. Jason drives a white sedan DeVille. Ron's father lives in Dickinson. End quote. Again, who were they looking for? And do you think that King knew that Jason, Ron, and Shorty were connected? 
because he didn't seem to at trial. The hunt continues. Quote, Source got cell phones for Jason and Ron. Thinks it's T-Mobile. I asked Debbie to subpoena T-Mobile for cell phones in Source's name. If you didn't track that, this person is saying that they bought the phones for Jason and Ron, so the accounts are under his name. And what you really need to be paying attention to here is the timing. They haven't arrested Pablo yet, and King has already filed subpoenas for Ron and Jason's phone records. On Monday the 2nd, King writes, quote, Shorty drove, and he gives a plate number, honey-colored Cadillac, new. Heard Shorty lives at I-45 in Cavalcade. Bought new car. Got his plate. Registered to P.O. Box. Gloria knows Jason. End quote. Still hunting for the three main suspects. And there was another suspect along the way, but he was cleared. He was in the parking lot in his truck when the shooting occurred, and he gave his shirt to a nurse who was helping Emerson for her to use as a bandage. Next, we have another interview with another unidentified source. The notes say, quote, Ron had pulled out a handgun. Jason had pulled out a handgun. Heard Jason got in fistfight that same night before he got there. IDs Pablo in array, but doesn't know last name. Says that he doesn't drive a Cadillac, used to drive a black Jaguar. Traded it for a blue Lexus, then traded it for a white Lexus. Went to middle school with him. Seen him at Perfect Rack one time, but did not see him on the night of the murder. End quote. The next day, King goes to the YMCA with a subpoena to find out Shorty's actual identity, because the previous tipster said that Shorty goes there every day. And he gets it. His notes say Richards is Narrows and lists his birthday, address, and cell phone number. So it seems like he's closing in. King then finds out that Shorty's been arrested before and he has a mugshot on file. So he uses that picture to create two photo array six-packs. One with Shorty and one with Shorty and Pablo. But he never actually shows the one with Shorty and Pablo in it to Claudia. Instead, he showed her the color headshot photo array with Pablo in it, and then showed her the black and white copy of a mugshot of Shorty Cisneros. Next comes the report of the gunfire at Buffalo Fred's. Oddly, though, King notes here that after the reports that Wooly, Shorty, and Ron were beating people up, firing guns, and threatening witnesses, King only lists Wooly as wanted. Quote, I list Jason Wooly as wanted since he's threatening witnesses. End quote. They were all threatening witnesses. I can't quite figure out why only Jason was wanted. I'd like to know why they were so afraid to go after Shorty and Ron, or if it was just genuine laziness because no one would testify against them. Next in the notes is the debacle with Claudia, quote, IDing Pablo, where she said that it looks like him, but the shooter had lighter hair, and then King changed what she said in the report, and then he and Swainson both lied under oath at trial. Then, Swainson and King go to the DA's office and ask for warrants for the arrests of Wooly and Pablo. No warrants for Shorty or Ron. A few days after Pablo and Jason's arrests, King interviews another unidentified witness. And these are the notes. Quote, Ron driving gold Cadillac. Shorty driving white Cadillac. Jason was there. Unsure of Pablo. Needs to see picture. Possibly Ron shot Emerson. He was shooting a 40 caliber. Jason was shooting a 9mm. End quote. 
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Remember I told you that two weeks before Pablo was arrested, King subpoenaed Wooly and Ron Strandberg's phone records. Well, he ended up with the records from Shorty as well. Remember that the foundation of this case is the fact that Wooly was absolutely at the perfect rack that night. He absolutely fired a gun, and he absolutely fled with the other shooters. But our big question was, who were his accomplices? Who was he connected to? I think from what we've covered so far, it's pretty clear that Wooly, Shorty, and Ron all rolled together. And that outside of the perfect rack shooting, they've been involved in other acts of violence together. But were they working together on the night of the shooting? Everything points to the shooting being a planned ambush. And since we have the phone records, it should be pretty easy to figure out who was involved. The judge in Pablo's case would not allow his defense to present Ron or anyone else as alternate suspects. In fact, when McLean tried to ask Kim Downs, the ballistics expert, what other shooting incident the 40 caliber round came from, Bogar objected due to relevance to the case, and the judge sustained the objection. So the jury was never allowed to hear what I'm about to share with you. And I also want to point something else out. We've been operating under the pretense this whole time that all three shooters left in the same car. But that's not necessarily proven. Claudia only actually saw two people get into the gold Cadillac. And Adrian said he thought he saw all three get into the same car... But when he gave the details, he said that he knows that Shorty was next to the gold Cadillac the whole time, and he knows Jason got into the car with him, but he doesn't actually say that he saw Ron get in. And we also have several witnesses from the notes that I just read to you say that they also saw a white Cadillac being used as a getaway car. Really, no one is super clear in all the chaos if the entire group left in one vehicle or two. In fact, the most clear witness that we have, the last note that I read to you from King's report, the person very specifically said, Wooly had a 9mm, Shorty was a shooter, Ron had a 40 caliber, they think Ron shot Emerson, and they said that Ron and Wooly left together in the gold Cadillac, and Shorty Cisneros left separately from them in a white Cadillac. I guess the assumption would be that they were parked right next to each other. The problem is that there were lots of eyewitnesses, but they were all running for their lives and ducking bullets. You had two, and really, I think, three shooters shooting from different directions. So with all that in mind, let's at least keep the idea on the table that all three men might not have left the scene in the same car. Literally, no one actually says that they saw all three of them pile into one vehicle. 
Many people assume all three did, but when they give the details, they can really only describe two getting into the gold Cadillac. And like I mentioned, the most detailed account that we have from anyone is whoever that unidentified witness is that has details that no one should have. He says that Shorty left in a white Cadillac. Ron and Wooly left in the gold one. First things first. Pablo says that on the morning after the murder, around 5.30 in the morning, Ron Strandberg called him and told him to report the car stolen. So let's first look in the phone records for that. And sure enough, there it is. Ron Strandberg called Pablo at 5.15 a.m. and then again at 11.06 a.m. Pablo's records show no other contact with any of the three suspects, just Ron and nothing before 5.15 a.m., three hours after the shooting, and when Pablo says he drove his truck past Ron's house on his way home from his ex-girlfriend's. Now, let's take a look at Ron, Shorty, and Wooly's phone records. We'll start with Jason Wooly. On the night of the murder, Jason had 19 calls with Shorty and four calls with Ron Stramberg between the hours of 9.38 p.m. and 4.45 a.m. Nowhere in the phone records do we ever see not once Pablo and Wooly communicate. And both state that they don't know each other in any capacity. And I'll also point out that in 2015, Wooly signed a sworn affidavit stating that he knew who the other shooters were, but he would not name them, and also that Pablo Velez was not involved. Now let's look at Richard Shorty Cisneros' phone records. Between the hours of 9.30 p.m. and 4.45 a.m. on the night of the shooting, Shorty had those 19 calls with Wooly that I previously mentioned, and 17 calls back and forth with Ron Strandberg. And just like Wooly, Shorty has no connection to Pablo whatsoever. Then we have Ron Strandberg. As I mentioned, on the night of the murder, he spoke with Shorty 17 times and Wooly four times. That's a total of 40 calls back and forth between the three suspects between the hours of 9.30 p.m. and 4.45 a.m. And the police had this information. And the prosecutor, Bogar, also had this information. And yet still never even bothered to interview Strandberg or Cisneros. Now, for the grand finale. The shooting occurred that night around 2.06 a.m., with some saying it is around 2.10 a.m. The police report, for what it's worth, says the 911 call came in at 2.06, but other witnesses say it was 2.10. But let's look at the detailed call logs right around the time of the shooting, keeping in mind that we 100% know that Wooly was one of the shooters. From 1.22 a.m. to 1.36 a.m., Shorty calls Ron Strandberg three times. At 1.37 a.m., Shorty calls Wooly, two-minute conversation. Then at 1.51 a.m., Shorty calls Wooly again, and they speak for one minute. And at 1.55 a.m., three minutes later, Shorty calls Wooly again for another one-minute conversation. Now we're getting into crunch time. At 1.59 a.m., Wooly calls Shorty, and they speak for three minutes. Then, at 2.01 a.m., the bar is closing now, Wooly calls Shorty again, another one-minute chat. They had to have just hung up before he called him right back. 
Then at 2.02 a.m., Wooly calls Shorty again, another minute. But three calls back to back to back. Then three minutes pass, we get to 2.06 a.m. This is either right before or right after the shooting, depending on if it happened at 2.06 or 2.10. But at 2.06, Wooly calls Shorty again for three minutes. Then six minutes go by, from 2.09 to 2.15. Then Wooly calls Shorty again, and again at 2.16. Then at 2.28 a.m., Ron calls Shorty. The trio exchanged 10 more calls between themselves before 4.44 a.m. There is only one possible explanation for what happened that night. It was an ambush. Calculated and planned. There is just no way that I can agree to any theory that involves Jason Woolley talking to Ron and Shorty multiple times in the seconds leading up to the shooting and in the moments directly after and having it be someone other than Ron and Shorty in the parking lot shooting with him. This mini-season has been different from any other on Truth and Justice. We've never before had a case where it was more obvious who the actual offenders are. We've also never seen a more egregious example of police and prosecutors intentionally leaving likely killers on the streets. But we're not quite done yet. We still need to hear from Pablo's attorneys to hear what happens next and how we can help. That's in two weeks on Truth and Justice. Mike and I are taking next week off, so the follow-up for this episode will not air until the 26th, which is Black Friday. So until then, take care. Thanks for listening. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. 
And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.